Revelation chapter 2. And we'll read about the church in Smyrna this morning and uh, I'll do some introductory things before we get into uh, looking at the text. But due to the, the length of this letter to Smyrna, it lets me get some introductory things that I wanted to play with, uh, with you possible. But let's go and read uh, Revelation 2 verse 8. <clears throat> Revelation 2 verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for three days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. All right, so one thing that now we have a little bit of time is, I don't know if the back of your Bibles have a a picture of where all these uh, churches are. They're all fairly close together in what would be today modern uh, Turkey on the western side when you read about or hear people talk about Uh, Asia Minor or Asia in the scriptures. That's not the Far East like we think of it, but rather this area. Uh, And so this is where all those uh, cities are. You might be able to observe uh, Patmos on here, which is just off the coast. Let's see if we can get... All right, right there. So he's not far away from all of that when you have messengers who would be getting this letter and then being distributing it to the the various seven churches and uh, a unique situation that you don't have a letter particularly to each church, but it looks like everybody got to read each other's mail on this one, right? I mean, you even saw that in our reading when it says here, he who has an ear and hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Like everybody's getting to read what everybody's going through right now in all of this. <clears throat> you might remember that I mentioned when we were doing some of our introductory things about the different perspectives on how to read uh, the book of Revelation. And one of the perspectives was that these things are for all time, essentially, that you know every church represents all churches uh, in history. And so the Ephesus church is the leaving of the first love. So that's the church of, of uh, those churches today who... Uh, have a shell but really don't have the heart and then here we have the church in Smyrna which is going to be a lot about tribulation and hardship and suffering and so there's churches today uh, that have all have all of that I wanted to show you because from time to time I want to reference what the mainstream point of view is I, I remember I told you Tim LaHaye left behind all that kind of stuff so every once in a while I'm going to pull out his stuff just so that you're in the know of Uh, how this is all generally taken so I can get a sense of how you would understand the book of Revelation. But I want you to see how a dispensational premillennialist point of view is in all of this, is that rather than taking these churches as referring particularly to the Christians in the first century and how they are being affected, I want you to notice the time frames that he puts on these. So he speaks of this letter to the church in Ephesus as representing this whole time frame for the universal church for the first century. 
And then when you come to Smyrna, now you've gone from 100 AD to the time of Constantine, the persecuted church. And then the Constantine, you might remember as emperor, he's the one that puts an end to the Christian persecution. So now he's going to call this the indulged church, which is taking it from 312 to 606. And if you kind of have an idea of 606, that's kind of the rise of the Roman Catholic Church at that at, at that point. Though they will say they go back to 30, but 600 kind of historically. So then he says Thyatira represents from 606 all the way to the time of the tribulation. I found these interesting is that at this point, everything has a front time marker, but is still going on. So Thyatira 606 to still now. 1520 for Sardis, still still going now. Philadelphia, 1750 to now. And then Laodicea for 1900 uh, to the tribulation. All right, what do you think of that? Okay. And he's not the only one. I, I scoured through some commentaries, and there's a couple other people that did similarly in, in this idea of this idealistic, it represents... For all time. One thing I want you to see is so by the time you get to the end of chapter three, you're taking Revelation to modern times, which I think is certainly the goal of, of, of this, is to make this book written directly to us rather than directly to the first century and then having application to us. But how would you deal with that? Somebody goes, No, no, this is how you're supposed to read it's supposed to how you're supposed to read this. This really smart guy, Tim LaHaye, who wrote all these books and is really popular and says right on here he's he's sold over 300,000 of these uh is is says the, these things you know okay we 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 there's a reason we stood in the first three verses in our first class for a really long time <laughs> things that must soon take place how are we doing with this mentality uh, we have you know four timelines that haven't even been completed yet because they would say the tribulation nor the rapture have happened yet so so yeah four that still haven't even taken place and if you're going to hold it must soon take place then only the first one was going to soon take place Ephesus to the 100 AD everything else was after their lifetimes what else how else would you consider this What's the problem with this mentality of taking it like this? I mean, why not have an interpretive grid like this? Let's just say we deleted all the dates and said, okay, well, it's, it's these moving times in history. Each church represents hundreds of years and hundreds of years and hundreds of years. You know, is there any reason to do that or not to do that? Or do we just go, no. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, one of them just, when you read as we just read, do you get a sense as a natural interpretation this? Would you read this and go, oh, well, clearly the second church is not referring to the people who were alive when they got the letter. And the third church is not referring to the people who are alive that got the letter or the fourth or the fifth or the sixth or the seventh. I have a hard time thinking the church in Smyrna read this and went, well, this is for 300 years later. (laughs) I'm not sure that that would be your most natural interpretation of the book. It seems to me you have to really 
jam this in and force us to read this way. And I don't know that anybody in the first century would have got these letters and went, oh yeah, this is definitely talking about 1900 to the tribulation. I am sure they sat down and, you know, here they are in 95 AD, 70 AD, next generation, 150 AD. And they're like, yeah, don't worry about Church of Laodicea, 1900s, definitely. How would you do that? How would you have an interpretation that, Anybody would have understood that, Charlotte. All the letters, or most of the letters that were written in the New Testament, talk about persecution and right, and yeah. uh, maybe not well, tribulation or, or rapture. Yes, rapture's not even in there. No. But all of these churches, as they were established, had problems like that. Yes, yes. Isn't there a problem when your interpretation only works backward in time and not forward in time? I mean, you have to think about that. It's all well and good to stand here in 2022 and go, oh, yeah, that's the 1900s. But who in the first century was reading that and going, yeah, that's the 1900s? Your interpretation has to work both directions. The people who received it have to be able to understand it pointing forward just as well as we stand over here and can read it and see it going backward. You can't have it where it's like, oh, yeah, well, don't worry about that. That's 3,000 years later. Well, who would have understood that? Who would have grasped that? Nobody would have. Well, there's a certain arrogance of presentism in this. Yes. Somehow we're at the end of this. That as a historian just strikes me as maddening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, 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 the same thing, same thing for the church in 606. Right. It wouldn't have made any sense either. No. That sort of projection out of it. Exactly. Yet nowhere on the timeline does this make sense to the people who would have received it, right? I, I think you're exactly right. I love the madness of the story because, I mean, it really is. It, it, to me, it's an attempt to try to make this book be written to us. And you don't have to do that to make this book relevant. You don't have to make the Gospel of Matthew written to us to make it relevant to us and applicable to us. This can be written to first century Christians and just be as important, applicable, and necessary as the other New Testament books and Old Testament books. But to me, this is an attempt to try to make this more vibrant to our day and time. So when we read about locusts, we're going to be reading about helicopters and things like that is what's going to come in because we've rolled the time frame so much forward. But again, if nobody in the first century would have thought helicopters, which I don't know how they would have, then you've got a problem on this side making it say that. It has to be something they would have understood. And I don't see how they would have understood. Well, 606, of course, was uh, the Roman Empire. I, can't, I have to refresh my memory. Why 1520 and 1750? What about those dates were significant in Christianity? None that I can... Oh, yeah, that's what it is. That's the time of the Reformation. Yeah, that, so that, that, why is that the dead church? I don't know, because that was the Reformation movement. Well, what about a church? Oh, I, well, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I mean, it, it's almost attempting to try to suggest, like you were pointing out, like the first century didn't have persecution, and the persecuted church starts at 100. 
And then, you know, it's the indulged church in the 300s. It's the indulged church all the time. So I, I don't see the, the breakdowns. Julie, did you have something before that? So, and I asked everybody at the beginning of our study, and I'll keep saying it over and over again as we go through it, is just to try to put yourself in the first century audience, getting this book, and what would have been the most natural explanation or interpretation or understanding when you read these messages or symbols or teachings, what would have been the most logical way you would have read it? And to keep to that. And to me, I can't, that doesn't fit. <laughs> I just don't see anybody at all the time. And, and it is, it's to me a little bit of a historical arrogance to stand out here and look backward and go, oh, see, I can, I can do all those things. But that's the same games that are played. Like if you've read any of those other prophetic books that come along that get shoved in the Walmarts and, and you know, like, oh, well, it was talking about the fall of the, the Twin Towers in 2001. You think anybody in the first century or second century would have read that and go, yeah, I don't have anything to worry about. One day it's going to be New York City. Are you kidding? I mean, you have to be able to have a forward look and a backward look that reconcile. And if they can't see those things, and it's one thing to not get the precision, but to think that they were supposed to have some kind of grasp of that way down the road just doesn't work. And to me, that's what is the problem with this. So in prepping for this, I was absolutely surprised uh, to pull this open and, and just see just see all these headers. I know you can't see this from back, back there, but the persecuted church, AD 100 to 312. So just when I was like, wow, I got to put that on the chart so you can see all that. But anyway, there it is right there. So Mr. Revelation Scholar. All right. Any questions about that before we now actually get to study what the Word of God says rather than these ideas? Muriel? I was just going to suggest that, that if this were true, uh, that the Scripture would have indicated, you know, give us some idea that it was for the future. I would think so. I would think there'd be some kind of, and then after that, because the prophets know how to do that. Like Joel that we just recently did in our, in our Wednesday class, and after these days, oh, okay, there's my trigger that we're not, we're, we're rolling forward to things. You don't have that here. You have John being told, write to these seven churches and tell them these things. And there's nothing there indicating some kind of future idea. Dennis? Um, now, I know it's kind of a stretch, but most of this is. But, um, <laughs> couldn't the pagans be like the Moors where they came and told them? They're not pagans. Yeah. You know, say, but yeah. maybe Christian church exactly Sure. This. Yeah, I think it's the plunging of the Dark Ages and the rise of the Roman Catholic Church is that that six oh six marker is, is is looking at right there. But again, if you get to stand in twenty twenty two and pick and choose your historical reference points, <laughs> you know. That's really dangerous. Uh, that, that's really, really dangerous. And I think that's a big problem. So, again, this has to work to the people who are hearing this. Stan? The whole purpose of the book is outcome driven. And so, if you, if they're looking at the outcome, they're going to look at the outcome and say, well, John, why are you wasting our time? Exactly. 
Yeah, what a waste of time, right? Here the saints under the altar crying out, how long? Well, I don't know. It's going to be a real long time. <laughs> you know, things that still haven't happened yet. What, what kind of answer is, is, is that? So anyway, I wanted to show you one of the mainstream ideas that I don't think works to the book of Revelation. But these are the things that cause confusion. And these are the things that trouble me about how often the book of Revelation is presented is let's try to make the book as complicated as possible rather than trying to figure out, you know, what would have been a very clear and simple way to understand what what God said instead of trying to create these, these monster uh, time frames that, that we have here. All right, well, let's get back into the text. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, as we just read before we got into the, the, the side the sideline here. I guess I can leave the map up for you if you want a map. You can have a map. <clears throat> um, so a number of different things to look at. We, we've noted that there's a, a, a structure to these letters that is repeated. So you get a self-description of Jesus. You get the good works the church was doing, you get the bad things that were they were doing, the changes that need to be made, and then the final outcome is usually the framework of these letters. So you pick where you want to go. You want to talk about self-description, the good, the bad, the ugly, the, the change, or the, the finale. Got lots of things to look at. So doors open to you. Where do you want to go? Charlotte. Okay. All right. Where do you see that in this? Okay. So verse eight, uh, the words of the first and the last who died and, and came to life. Is there anything else that has uh, death resurrection kind of imagery to the church in Smyrna that you see here besides verse eight? Yep. Okay. Okay, yeah, so he talks about suffering here. Any other death resurrection terminology in this letter? Okay, so we've got receiving a crown of life in uh, verse 10. What else? Be, be bold in your answers. The... <laughs> okay, we've got the second death at the end of verse 11. And... And one who conquers, we got, and faithful unto death. There's a lot of death to life in this one. So what do you think that's telling the church in Smyrna? Yeah, when it starts talking in here about what you're going to experience, this isn't just, you know, things are going to get a little hard. It is interesting that you have who died and came to life. Be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There's a lot of emphasis in a very short letter about death and life going on. So there's a severity that it, to what is being said to the church in Smyrna that wasn't said to the church in Ephesus that I think is interesting. Um, not a lot of time for it, but the church in Smyrna, in, uh, well, the church with the city of Smyrna uh, is, a, is a very important city. Uh, to us, these are just names of, of cities. Uh, it rivaled Ephesus in terms of its power, in terms of its 
uh, imperial religious cult worship in terms of its culture and size and importance. Uh, it was a very significant city. And so even though to us, we kind of read Smyrna and go, you know, it's some small town in Tennessee. Uh, it was really a big, big city in Asia Minor and was uh, of great importance. And so uh, to get a sense of the Christians that are living there, you are in a metropolis. You are in a, a place of importance. Uh, and, and so that would kind of explain some of the difficulties that are being uh, projected here, Charlotte. Yeah, you would have that in, in Asia Minor uh, typically as well, as you're not, you know, horrifically far from, from Jerusalem, at least in terms of how far you could go to the West. And so you certainly see that. Because remember, uh, the Apostle Paul does an awful lot of work in, in, in Asia Minor and going around and establishing churches and doing that work. So you would expect Jewish population. You would expect synagogues, uh, which we're, we are going to get to read about right here. How about that? Uh, what what God knows here? What does Jesus know about this church? Okay, so here's the first piece of comfort, right? I know what you're going through. That had to be great. Can you imagine if, if the Lord Jesus could open the doors and walk in and go, I know what you're going through. I see your afflictions. I see your tribulation. I know the hardships that you are facing. I see all of that, Julie. And it's not just that they were poor. It says that they were rich. So yep. That would have been extremely Absolutely. And think about what would be the reasoning for the poverty that this would be brought up. Do you think that the Christians are being told that they are impoverished because, you know, you bought two, one, one too many chariots. You got yourself, you know, kind of in hot there and the economy went sideways. And I know that you're in poverty now. Why do you think the poverty? Because of their faith, right? They're suffering and losing possessions. Because of their faith, Nathan. The, the um, Amanison of Smyrna was actually an extremely rich city. Yes. The, the reality was that if you're a Christian, you know, as Hebrews um, says, you know, the the confiscation of your property yeah. was because because you wouldn't confess Caesar's law. That's right. Then your property yeah. was confiscated. That's and, right. And I gather that. You know, these tourists said that you, you know, there were additional taxes being imposed. So, just being a Christian would, would mean that you know you, you become Absolutely. destitute. And it's one of the hardest things for us in 21st century America to get our our minds around. It is it, just kind of no way for us to get there. There was not an idea of the separation of church and state. <laughs> Those two were bound together significantly. So to go to your publics required pagan worship. To buy your meat required pagan worship. To 
purchase things, required pagan worship. It was bound together in a way that we don't understand because our world just, you know, the car dealers over there and the Publix is over there and the church is over there and everything is, was pulled apart. But there, everything's jammed together. Everything is in a forum and it's all just jammed in that place. And that's, that's the marketplace of everything. And I love, it was very insightful to be a part of the trip I got to take this summer because you, it, it's, it, they're all just right there next door to each other as you're walking. And it's like, okay, this shop's got this and there's the idol right there where the worship and the altars were, right? Yeah, you pick up your food and there's the altar sitting right there. It's all just shoved together. So poverty would come if you're not willing to participate in pagan worship or in emperor worship. Well, and I, from reading on this, when Domitian put out the edict for, you know, to worship them, the Jews were exempted from that. They were. And so and they didn't want the Christians coming in. They, right. They've got to make right. They can continue with their thing. There is a connection between them and Christians. Yep. They don't want that to be there, so they're going to suppress the Christians. That's right. Yeah, the Jews are not going to be helpful at all. In fact, you'll notice the text gives that, doesn't it? Look at verse verse 9. Who's, who's slandering them? Who's causing them problems? People who say they are Jews, but are not. And then what are they described as? A synagogue of Satan. So I, one thing that I think is very important to see that the, the seven churches of Asia remind us about is when you are in the first century, what group of people are the primary persecutors of Christians? The Jews are, not the Romans. The Jews are. Who's chasing Paul all over the countryside? Not the Romans. The Jews. The Romans are rarely an issue. It is usually... Paul goes into a synagogue, gets in trouble in the synagogue, gets thrown out of the synagogue, gets beaten for preaching what he preached in the synagogue, goes into the next city, rinse and repeat. Same thing happens over and over and over again. The Roman Empire is not particularly a problem in the first century. That is gradually happening. It is beginning to take place. It will intensify into the second and the third centuries. But in the first century, when you read this right here, who's troubling them? A synagogue of Satan, the Jews who are not Jews. They say they're the people of God, but they're not the people of God. I think that's an important lens to maintain when you read the book of Revelation is don't forget who's causing Christians problems in the first century. And don't overlook these lines that say the Jews are the ones who are causing you trouble. And they are the ones who are causing the affliction and the suffering, which is exactly what you see the Apostle Paul ultimately dealing with. As he's going and visiting people, uh, and then he leaves and the house gets flipped over. Remember Jason's house? They get blitzed because Paul was there preaching. Paul leaves. But think about what's happening to the Christians afterward. Because they're still running around proclaiming what Paul proclaimed. And I think that's what you're seeing here, I think is important. Mike? Yes. Yes. So you're not here when you're about to suffer. So if it's bad right now, you know, the chronic form is going to get worse. But 
you know, um, the ringing true of uh, you know, being faithful unto death and giving the crown of life is that being able to separate your physical, separate yourself from your physical environment to really understand that and believe that and, and stay true to that. What a challenge. Yes. Absolutely. When, especially you can imagine what a great temptation it is to just cave in surface level to make your life easier, to alleviate the suffering, to make it so you're not so impoverished, to do whatever it takes to kind of make it not so bad. And I think that's important to see, especially notice while comforting, not comforting, he says, I know your tribulations and your afflictions. But then he goes on and just says, and don't fear what you're about to suffer. Not what you've already suffered. More's coming. It's, it's been terrible for you. Don't worry. More's coming. It, it's going to be terrible going forward too, Julie. And you know, it's important that we don't want to change that we cannot forget anything we've over. That's right. The Jews are the puppets of the devil because they are called the synagogue of Satan. Right. I think that's really important to see is as much as verse nine zeroes in on the slander of those that are saying they are Jews that are not. They're a synagogue of Satan. Notice who's ultimately behind the suffering and the hardships and the tribulation that they're going through. Verse 10, the devil. Now, that's really important. I want you to keep this lens in your mind. Because there's a reason then why we need to talk about the devil in chapter 20. Because we're seeing that he is the big problem here. Okay, So I've, I'm, I'm leaking to you some helps in talking about things that must soon take place. And yet we're going to get to the end of the book and we're talking about things that have taken place. How are we going to reconcile this? I'm, I'm starting to feed you some pieces here. Piece one. Notice right here we're saying there are some things that God needs to deal with. And yes, the Jews are a problem, but we know who's underneath that. Jen, did you have something earlier there? No? Okay. Uh, Debbie? I have a question about when it says they say they are Jews and are not. Yeah. Is that because they don't believe that Jesus is Yeah, I think that when they when this reads Jews, that they're saying, you know, we're the true people of God. Okay. And he's going, yeah, they claim to be the true people of God, lineage, Jewish, but they're not. They're not, which, which makes sense. If you're really the people of God, are you going around killing other people? Okay, I mean, we can just kind of put a baseline right there. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, are you supposed to go around causing everybody to be suffer and go persecute them and give them difficulty? No. So he's saying, they think they're standing on the words of the law of Moses by what they do to you. Because you know what they're doing. It's, it's what Jesus and the apostles experienced. You're blaspheming. And he goes, no, no, they're not, they're not real. They're not really my people. Yes, but but as they claim themselves to be the people of God, because 
Obviously, it's not that they are Jews physically, but not really Jews physically. They are Jews physically, but I think more in terms of that spiritual remnant of God's people. Well, I'm sort of picturing like, a, like some sort of a subgroup or something that's a sect or something that then particularly then bridges yeah. to, to the Christian. Yeah, no, I look at it like this way. They're going, hey, we're the Jews. We're the real people of God. And God's over here going, yeah, they're the Jews, but they're not really. <laughs> they're not really the people of God. Uh, they say that, but they're not that. Like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Charlotte? I was just going to say the letters of Paul, practically all those churches you mentioned, Jews bringing in uh, some of the Old Yeah, yeah, and and they're they're the they're the troublemakers again. That's I think that's important to see in the book. The book of Revelation, to some degree, already that we've barely got going, has to deal with the Jews being a problem to Christians, and must deal with the devil who is ultimately behind all, all of this. This book has to deal with that because it's putting it forward as they're the troublemakers. And as it's not specified here directly, but I think implied because you brought it out when it's talking about uh, knowing their poverty and what we're going to see later on about emperor worship and pagan worship and things like that. Certainly there's got to be some dealing with the Roman Empire and what they're doing to the Christians. That's going to be very clear in the book as well, that they're, they're also part of the problem. So that makes a lot of sense to already kind of get a sense of we can get a framework of why the book of Revelation is going to deal with a lot of this judgment imagery on varying groups of people because these are the varying groups of people that are persecuting the real people of God, which is how the prophets talked, right? I mean, the prophets would say, okay, uh, you know, pick, pick any of the prophets, pick any of them. All right, we're judging Jerusalem. But I'm also judging the Babylonians because they came in and did this to you and they caused you suffering and pain or they went too far or they did this and they did that. So you always have God going, yeah, I'm dealing with this group. I'm going to deal with them for what they did. I'm going to deal with them for what they did. I'm going to deal with them for what they did. And this we already saw. Remember the first three verses. This is a book of prophecy, right? This is we, we understand this to be a book of prophecy. And so it's talking about those kinds of things. So. I hope that'll be some, I'm going to try to give you these pieces along the way as we go, which will help kind of give you a sense of, of how I see things. But to me, again, it's a natural reading of the book. We have a synagogue of Satan. We have people who are claiming to be Jews that are not. So clearly that issue of what you see in the first century of Christians being persecuted by the Jews uh, ultimately needs to, needs to be dealt with, which... You remember Jesus ran around saying that we're going to get there eventually in the gospel of Matthew, but... Jesus is going to walk around telling them, hey, you know, your your house is empty. God's not with you. And he's going to destroy the, the temple because of that. So it makes sense to have prophecies saying, yeah, we got to deal with them because they're they're persecuting God's people rather than repenting. Okay, what else, Jess? I'm just trying to think how painful this might have been for the, many of the first century Christians because they themselves are coming out of the synagogue. Absolutely. So to understand this is a personal thing they are people who are leaving that yes. faith and, and would identify themselves culturally yes. historically as Jews yes. ethnically as yes. Jews who are now Christians right. in faith and they are being they're being 
punished by the people they've come out from. Absolutely. And, and something that I think we have a hard time understanding as well, because we've become such um, a culture of independence that can you imagine that this is this is your culture, your family, your social connections, your group. This is this is this, and, and you're hearing these words because to us, you go like, you know, oh, judgment's coming on America. Fine. I'll sit in my house and watch Netflix, you know, whatever, you know, break, bring it down. You know, imagine a, a closer family social unit that existed at that day and time and to say, uh, they're the ones persecuting you. They're the ones causing you you problems, and a judgment has to come. So I think that's that's a really important um, observation with, with that, Janet. This whole section goes against the thinking that you know God wants us all to be prosperous. Sure, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, especially because uh, you know it's not uh, it's, everything's going to be fine. One of the th- messages you're going to see repeated in the Book of Revelation is, "I know that you're suffering now, and it's not going to get any better." <laughs> you know, but in a strange way, isn't that comforting in one way to know I, I'm, I'm better off if I know it's coming. <laughs> you know, it's like going to the dentist. I can brace myself. I, okay, I know this is not going to be pleasant. You know, I will grip the handlebars and get through my hour and get out of there kind of, kind of thing. You know, it's not going to get any better. So there can be a, a little bit of mentality of, listen, I know what you're going through. I know what they're saying about you. I know what you're experiencing and there's going to be more. So get ready. And, and again, the New Testament, not only the book of Revelation, but you know, you would get to first Corinthians seven, the apostle Paul's talking about. There's these difficulties that are going to come to such a degree at that time. He's even reminding people might be better not to marry because it's going to get really, really bad. Things are starting to come down on the Christians. And so there's preparation being given here. Get ready. It's going to get hard. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be more suffering to come. It's not going to be easy. And that's why I've, I've done a lot of lessons with you about, you know, we're just so used to comfortable, easy Christianity and we're not used to being Christians when you have to suffer or lose your property or lose your stuff or go through all of that. When the government says don't do it and to be willing to go, well, I'm going to do it anyway. We're not used to that world. We've been, we've been having it easy. Thank God. I'm glad we've had it easy. But that's not their world. <laughs> that's not what they're living in. Uh, and it may not be for a whole lot longer our world that we live in either. Nathan, did you have something there? The... Um... The, the idea, when I saw the, the stipulation, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison yep. um, to test you. The, so it, it, I kind of saw it as part of spiritual warfare in a sense, but you know, I, I go back to, to Hebrews where it says, these Christians joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. That's right. And, and so the blessing here in Revelation is that I will, um, I will give you the crown of life. You overcome yeah. will not be hurt. So it's about testing and perseverance. Absolutely. So it, I get the sense that John is, is actually putting forward what is going to come, but, but he's saying that there's a blessing, this is a testing of your faith, and therefore 
overcoming or conquering or perseverance or you know is, is what is that's right important here but i mean it's challenging oh yeah when you understand it you know but yeah. when i read some of these stories of, of, of these some of these christians kind of went joyfully to their death mm -hmm. you, you you kind of you know want that's right that. that's uh, right it's the great paradox. What makes them rich? Because they're not holding on to their property at all costs. That's why they're rich. If they were concerned about the physical, they wouldn't be rich spiritually. They're rich spiritually because they said, you're going to take my house? Okay, I'm still following Christ. You're going to take my car? All right, that, that's fine. I also remember Paul saying in 2 Corinthians, I have nothing and yet I possess everything. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And all over the New Testament, that kind of language, right? It's all over the New Testament. I have five minutes left, so I've got to at least get two more things taken out so that we can have this section covered. Uh, Dathan brought up verse 10 about being thrown in prison. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. We got to talk about that. Please. Please. <laughs> all right. So how should we understand that? And Why? So how should we think about 10 days? Is it 10 days or is it not 10 days? And why would you know? Frank? No, it's, not a, it's a bigger speech. It's just a, 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 I don't know the number is. It could be okay. not exactly 10 days. But okay. So, so there's two options, right? It's only going to be 10 days? <laughs> or 10 days refers to something far bigger. And we can start using our, our symbolism that, you know, tens are, are used in terms of completion. And we talked about the very beginning that we would read this book and see symbols unless something in the text demands otherwise. Um, I would also be leaning to this not being 10 actual days because 10 days isn't a very long time to be thrown in prison. But I think if you're saying... This is going to be a while, but there's a limitation to it. You know, there's a duration to it. There's an end to it. And I, I, that's the way I look at what the 10 days is, is referring to is, yes, you've had a lot of suffering. You're going to be thrown into the prison. You're going to have this testing. Uh, the tribulation is going to last for 10 days. So take that as it's going to be significant, but it's not going to be a super long time. You didn't. He didn't call it 10 years. He didn't call it 1,000 years. He didn't call it 500 years. He called it 10 days. So you're going to have some time of tribulation, but ultimately a short-lived idea of what you're going to go through. So you've been in a lot. There's going to be more, but don't think there's not an end to what, what's, what's coming at you. That's how I would understand using that, that terminology there. Julie, did you have something there? No? Julie, no? Okay. Anything with the 10 days? Before I do one more, then we might have time for something else. Yeah, good. If affliction doesn't necessarily mean death. No, it doesn't. And I think it's talking about their, their suffering, that there's going to be more suffering ahead. That's going to lead potentially for some to, to die, be faithful unto death. Uh, but that brings in the other one, verse 11, uh, will not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? And how do you know? Hell. Hell, how do you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that's 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 fair. If you've if you've jumped ahead to Revelation twenty, you talk it talks about first deaths and second deaths. So what would you suppose to be your first death? Your physical death. So what other when you say a second death, what other well let maybe I back it up this way. First death, your physical death, but what's being separated? Yeah, the, the body and 
soul are being separated. Body goes into the ground. Second death, what's being separated? You and God. Okay, so I think that's the idea here is to say the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Notice he didn't say you won't be hurt by the first death. That would have been nice. I would have liked it to say not hurt by the first and the second. (laughs) No, if you're willing to go through the first, you won't be hurt by the second. That's the idea. This thing is filled with death resurrection imagery. Be willing to be faithful to death. And we're going to say this probably with every church. Faithful to death does not mean living till you're 95 and being faithful for 95 years, though it's great, true. Faithful to death means when they kill you, you are still staying faithful to God. Be faithful to death and the second death is not going to hurt you. You're going to be fine. You're going to be with God, which is what this book is going to, going to picture. Julie? Well, that's what I was going to say, because for my first 20 years of being Christian, I was always like, oh, be faithful unto death. And Revelation 2.10, yeah. don't do it. Right. But our faithful unto death is not their faithful. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to yeah. be crowned white because yeah. they were faithful, all caps, unto death. And so how are we faithful exactly. in our society? Exactly. If culture keeps shifting the way it is, we might be getting more used to what they're understanding. We've applied it to our understanding of comfortable Christianity and well true. Please be faithful unto death. But understand what he was telling them was you're going to have to be faithful in spite of death. And when it comes at you, don't lose your faith. Mike? Uh, just, uh, you know, you realize it's the synagogue of Satan. You realize it's the devil. But it's only the why. I don't know that, like you said, we could ever relate. But the why is that you may be tested, yep. which is crazy. That's right. Well, and and here, that's the this little implied thing that we've talked about quite a bit. So why is God allowing all this? Because God's a sovereign over this. I mean, the book is going to show us. He can just go, right? He can just go whack to Satan, kick him to the sideline. He's going to do it. He's going to show it. So why are you you're being tested? This is more of a testing of faith. Faith needs to be tested. This is what God's answer is every time about this kind of thing. It's the answer in the book of Job. It's the answer throughout the New Testament. All right, we'll take on the next church, Pergamum, next week. 15-minute break. Reconvene at 1030 for our next hour of worship. Take a 15-minute break. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it.